Boop, boop. Okay. Uh, check. Maggie, we are officially on. Go ahead and take it away. Hello and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about history, faith, ethics, and sexuality from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. Um, my name is Maggie. I am a graduate student in the field of history, specifically uh, American evangelical history. And my name is Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy, and I focus on ethics and epistemology. podcasts ago, we talked about books that have really helped us recognize patterns of racism and injustice in uh, the United States in particular. And I brought up a book by Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise, which really does talk about uh, white evangelicalism's complicity with racism. And so Jamar Tisby is someone who we've kind of been keeping an eye on in the sense that he is a powerful voice Mm -hmm. in the black Christian community. He has an organization, The Witness, um, that has been growing really by leaps and bounds Mm -hmm. in recent years. Uh, They have a podcast uh, that's very interesting to listen to, very illuminating, definitely perspectives that I don't often hear are offered in that podcast. And he recently gave a talk for the Veritas uh, Forum. So a Veritas talk is, um, I think many of our listeners have probably heard about it. Veritas stands for truth. Um, It's often on campuses where you have a Christian thinker talking, either debating or in conversation with a um, academic from that institution. And so this talk was not like that. It was just a presentation um, by Jamar on his new book, Uh, that's coming out next year, How to Fight Racism. And it was called Where is God in Our Racial Divide? And Joel and I both listened to the event. And uh, there were a few other events as well related to it that um, we had connected with. And we have some thoughts. And so, Joel, I think that's what we want to talk about today is some of the ideas that Tisby had, some of the reactions he's had to particularly white Christianity and their reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement. And so, um, well, yeah, what what were kind of your takeaways from the event? Yeah, well, and I and I just want to like affirm a bunch of the stuff you said earlier. Like, I think Jamar Tisby is such a wonderful, wonderful person, and I think he's making a very important contribution to racial justice within the church, within Christianity. And so, he's someone you want to be listening to. He's someone you want to come under and learn from, listen to. And so, you know, uh, we were really excited about the Veritas presentation and had really good conversations about it with our friend group and other graduate students that we hang out with. And um, I think it was just, it was just a valuable experience. You know, I think it was another piece of this journey of learning how to become an ally and how to love our black brothers and sisters better, how to reflect on our own tendencies to be complicit, complacent, maybe idle when it comes to racial justice. And so um, one of the things I really liked about the talk was that he gave a preview of his forthcoming book on on um, how to like disrupt racism in the church, and he gave this really nice like 
um, piece of advice about what you can do. It involves three things. He calls it the ARC of justice. And so it's an acronym. And the ARC stands for awareness, relationships, and commitment. And um, and so he just explored each of these, and he'll go into more detail in his forthcoming book. But I, I was really moved by um, A, awareness. And I think as someone who's involved in ethics education, who's, in, who's a teacher within the philosophy world or kind of entering into that role, I'm very interested in raising awareness about justice issues. And, and, um, and so I, th- I thought that this was a really nice piece of his presentation where, where he really, I mean, and, th- and I thought I was like thinking about you, Maggie, as he was like making this, this part of the presentation, because he kept talking about the importance of history and knowing history and learning yeah, history. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he was just, and, and he's, he's a historian too. He's actually, um, finishing up his own PhD in history. Uh, do, do you remember where is it? The University of Missouri? I think it's the University of Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. So he's a historian. And you could just see that like, he really values that discipline and sees that that discipline is valuable for understanding racial justice issues. And look, I don't study history. And I've been told by friends of mine, <clears throat> Maggie, that my knowledge of historical context is often really lacking. And I totally agree. And I think as I've tried to interact with more historical data on my Christian faith and on racial justice issues, I've realized how important it is, how important it is to know history. And on this issue, to know history as concerns racism in America. And I I really think that for white Christians or non-black Christians who want to do something about racism, who want to learn, who want to take that journey of allyship, you have to know some things. You have to educate yourself. You have to you have to become aware of the history of racial horrors, of discrimination, of immobilization against the black community. And I mean, one of the reasons, and this is what Tisby was kind of getting at, is like if you try to enter into a relationship with people of color or you want to create a church context in which people of color feel at home, but you're not aware of the kinds of hurdles and obstacles and discrimination their community has faced, it's going to create dissonance. And the people of color are just not going to feel at home in those contexts because they're going to feel like they have to educate you. They're going to feel like there's some, there's a missing piece of, of understanding in their relationship with you. And, and so it really is important to, to roll up your sleeves and do some digging, uh, looking at the, the very harrowing history of racism in America. And, and we have a podcast where we kind of talk about some of these things um, that were helpful to us, but there's, there's so many resources, so many resources to look at. So, I was really like encouraged again to think about history, to think about historical context. The claims about systemic racism and racial justice are not being made in a vacuum. There is a rich historical backdrop that informs that that discussion that leads people to think that there's systemic racism. And, you know, if you, you want to take that journey, you have to start digging into it. So I, I don't know. I liked that. I mean, I don't know if that resonated with you as a historian, but it really spoke to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyone who's out there actually telling people uh, that history matters is, you know, that's I'm a fan. Um, But I think another thing, too, that he's making the point, particularly for young people, uh, that 
there are moments in life where you get an opportunity to really explore these issues. And so to take advantage of that, because I mean, this was um, a Veritas forum, which is on a campus, right? So um, particularly talking to younger people and saying, look, this is, this is really on you to do this now. And so I thought that was really an astute point. Um, yeah, he's, he's really fun to listen to a very eloquent speaker. And he made some really powerful points about the past. Um, I think I'm always shocked when I talk to people about this and they're unaware of some of the more recent uh, issues in um, just America's racist past um, in the sense that some people are still struggling with whether or not the founding fathers owned slaves. Um, Absolutely. Like no one disputes that. Anyone who's read uh, anything that they wrote you know, they, they know uh, that they were slave owners. They didn't try to hide that or anything. And so I think there's also like a lack of just educational awareness coming from a lot of people. Um, but beyond that, the, this idea that the civil rights movement fixed everything. Um, and one of the things that he really started his presentation with was this comment, like, we are in a new civil rights movement. And mm, he really believes yeah, this I is loved that. a moment um, and I'm so fascinated by that. I wanted so much to ask him, like, as a historian, who are you watching? What documents are you collecting? Like, how do we teach this? Because um, that's immediately where my mind went. Um, but there is a hopefulness, I think, also to his talk that I found really um, inspiring, this idea that we can change things. Uh, and so I truly do hope that's true. Um, I'm a natural cynic. And so part of me wants to, <laughs> to um, say, well, you know, we've had moments of disruption before and not a whole lot has changed. Um, so it was nice to hear his optimism and his hope for um, the possibility of this new uh, civil rights movement. So I enjoy that. So the next part of the arc is relationships. And Maggie, you had some thoughts uh, about this part of the presentation. Yeah, I think this is one area that just really needs a lot of development because he's absolutely right. Like Christian relationships in particular are where we as the Christian community can go above and beyond division. Um, However, he also has made a lot of... um, He has clearly presented um, evidence that Black Christians are very traumatized um, by racial injustice, particularly the reaction of white evangelicals in this current moment. And first of all, I was a little bit skeptical of this argument that maybe it's time to withdraw, to kind of move back um, and find uh, a community you can immerse yourself in where you don't feel that trauma, where you feel at home, etc., and I'm like, well, that's not Christian. You know, that's kind of my, my view automatically. I'm like, well, we can't do that. Um, that's not the kingdom of God. But then he started giving like a list of like what the, the bar is for when you should leave. And he said things like, you know, you're, you're losing sleep. Some people are losing their hair. Um, you're yeah. constantly stressed and on edge. I mean, the, it, any situation where you feel that way, you should leave. I mean, my word. And so that level of, of concern um, was very surprising to me. But I do think it creates an, a difficulty in that if you have white Christians who very much so want to embrace this arc um, and really pour into deeper relationships, but they also very much so want to respect the space that black Christians might need to heal. Right. What do you do? 
right? You can't just, especially like I, I'm terrible at making new friends. <laughs> so like, I just, I, I'm already this mess of a person. Um, and so <laughs> if like, I am trying to like fix things or try to be better, like that's going to go really poorly for a while. And so I don't want to make the problem worse. And I also think that there are so many white Christians who truly believe they've been doing really well because they were taught that colorblind policy was good. This is how to not be racist. This is how to be post-race, you know, Um, and that's clearly not working, um, but there's no clear alternative because it was very easy to pretend at least to be colorblind and to just treat everyone exactly the same, which really ended up being treat everyone as if they're white. Um, But at least that was a practice that had clear boundaries, clear directions, and now there's not really any guidelines. And I'm not saying that the black community needs to provide clear guidelines, right. but I do think that that conversation needs to happen in a way that is going to be fruitful. And so um, I think that's something that white Christians need to talk more about. I think awareness is going to help a great deal because there are certain things that when you read up on them, it's just very clear that's going to be traumatizing certain behaviors. Um, and so there's a lot the white church can fix themselves. I'm not, yeah, and they ought to be fixing themselves. Um, but beyond that, I think there needs to be uh, new conversations and new development in this um, really complicated space of how to form new relationships in a moment that is so fraught with hurt and brokenness. And the church shouldn't sway away from that because that's where, you know, we thrive because we follow Christ and he was drawn to brokenness. He is the answer to brokenness, but we are imperfect. And so we have to be cautious. So that was, that was kind of my reaction to that, that it was, it's a great idea. I absolutely agree. I have no idea how to pursue that. Right. And I I think one thing that you had mentioned earlier, and I think I'd, I'd heard other people say too, is just that there's this tension, like, we know in predominantly white spaces that we we need to listen and learn and lean in to black voices and and allow ourselves to be influenced and shaped by black people and people of color and and yet at the same time we don't want to impose ourselves and we don't want to just insert ourselves in the relationship in a way that might end up being harmful um, and so I I think there is this kind of like anxiousness this tension and I don't think that we should run from that tension like. We need to learn how to deal with it. We need to know how to how to navigate it. And so I think you're, yeah, absolutely raising the right sorts of questions. And it makes me think that for a church that really cares about racial inclusion, it's not enough just to have representation. Like you need to do the work, do the work of learning about ethnic differences, about racial differences, about microaggressions. Learn how there are, you know, there are things that as a matter of like just social etiquette are, are like bad to do. And as a matter of like historical um, significance are harmful things that uh, ways of interacting um, ways of thinking, ways of um, assuming that can be really harmful to people of color. And like, that's just like, that's just like interpersonal skills and interpersonal wakeups that we in the white community need to have. And, and I, I'm just really, I'm thinking that part of the structure that needs to come into into the picture here is like diversity training classes with a Christian orientation. And 
you know, some people might hear that and be like, well, we know from, you know, studies in uh, social psychology that these trainings are often not effective whatsoever. I mean, especially like with respect to um, gender inclusion and like classes that are courses that are meant to help people, I don't know, pull away from gender bias. Like they're not very successful at all. But I think, I think that there are, there are things we can do to just take steps, even if they're baby steps, towards understanding how to interact better with people that we just haven't interacted well with historically. And I'm thinking about um, my own church. Uh, they offered a like kind of like a multiculturalism class. And I don't know, it's been super formative for me, just like learning about the different ways that people from different ethnic backgrounds and different racial backgrounds um, tend to worship or to interact, the kinds of things they prioritize, the kinds of things they value. And of course, like there's no absolutes here. These are just like clusterings or generalizations. But like just even knowing about these sorts of dynamics between groups can be really healthy and important and help us learn to navigate relationships in more informed and loving ways. And so I think that there has, there has to be training of this sort. And I don't know like how successful that's going to be, but like, I think, I think churches who care about multiculturalism have to, have to have classes like that. Like you can't just say, okay, let's open up our doors to multiculturalism and then expect that things are going to go well. No, on the other end of that, there's going to be lots of hurt and, and alienation. And so I think we need to do better at having classes that talk about multiculturalism. and, And I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think there's also just this concern over who teaches it, right? Like, right, right. where is that burden coming from? Like, that's a burden to teach a bunch of people who might not know something, whatever community you're trying to welcome into your church, um, that's probably going to fall onto someone from that community. Uh, So that kind of concern as well. But I mean, really, as far as like the statistics of whether or not these trainings are effective, things are as effective as you make them. I mean, truly, if you're going to something like this or you're trying to be better at something, become more aware instead of being forced into it, and most of that data comes from mandatory trainings, um, I think it's going to be very different. And so for the church to step into something and say, look, we need to do better. Um, We're going to make a lot of mistakes, but we need to, to try. I think that yeah, that's going to go leaps and bounds. So there's some there's some issues with it, right? Like it's not a, not perfect, um, and I can see why a lot of churches would really have trouble putting those sorts of things together. Um, but again, I don't think that means we should run away from it. I, I think we yeah. really need to start trying more things because just saying there's a problem and not doing anything about it has clearly not worked. Right. Yeah, and I think just going back to the like, multiculturalism classes or ethnicity awareness, racial awareness classes. Mm-hmm. I the class I'm taking is actually led entirely by non people who are not of color. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely run by white people. And you might like that might raise an eyebrow, but I think the idea is precisely to avoid something that you hinted at earlier is to we don't want to put the burden on black people or people of color to to you know always teach white people how to be more racially sensitive how to be more appreciative of differences. Um, and so it's it's led by members of the church who have been immersed in multiculturalism for years and who have done these mm-hmm. sorts of trainings before. And then we interact kind of tangentially with um, people from the church who are people of color. So like we did this exercise where we talked about uh, privilege 
and we had these paper clips and we start everyone started out with 10 and then the leader of the discussion would say if you've had this experience say if you have if you've come from a family that owns a house add one paper clip to your 10 if you haven't take one away and so we went through a string of like 25 different things that signal privilege and disprivilege and we're able to like compare amongst us as pe- you know um mostly whites to just kind of like figure out where we fall on the privilege spectrum. But then the class introduced us to the answers that people of color from the, from the church had given to the, to the same exercise. And so they weren't there having to like, you know, I don't know, like go through that experience with us, which might be like uncomfortable and even harmful, but we got to see their answers. And I think that was very moving, very, very moving. It was a very important moment for me to look at my link of paper clips. That's massive. It's hanging from my wall and then to see on the slide a link of like six paper clips from one of our black congregants. And it, it was just, it was very impactful. So there are creative things we can do where we're not putting the, bre- the burden, the pressure on black people to teach us, non-black people, how to do this, but we're at least engaging with them in some way. So I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but you're right. We've got to keep thinking through this. Um, so just moving along. We thought that this was a really good part of the talk, and, and I just wanted to kind of share some thoughts on a part of the talk that um, I had some reservations about, and and I just want to preface by saying I thought the talk was just outstanding and really important. So these criticisms should not uh, make anyone think that I, I thought poorly of the talk. But there was a moment during the Q&A where someone asked, the following question. It was a really good question. It was, why do so many evangelicals support Trump? And when I heard that question, I was like, oh, wow, I don't, I have no idea where Tesby is going to go with this. It was kind of exciting. I was kind of nervous because it's like this political question, right? And his answer went something like this. He said that many, many evangelicals buy into Christian nationalism. What is Christian nationalism? Roughly, it's the conflating of Christianity and a particular political regime. And the idea behind Christian nationalism is there's this kind of like theological worldview rooted in a certain interpretation of the Old Testament. And it says something like the flourishing of Christianity and the flourishing of Christianity's goals depends on political achievements and political power. The right political structures need to be in place in order for a nation to be where it needs to be spiritually and morally. And that's like God's, that's God's like goal. And if the moral integrity of a nation is compromised at a legal moral level, then it won't receive divine favor and instead will be subjected to divine judgment. So starting with this template, this, this, this theology that says that what happens at a political moral level matters and that, and that, you know, God brings favor or punishment depending on, how a nation is structured. This um, Christian nationalism view says that the church needs to concern itself with political achievements, and in particular, political achievements that safeguard Judeo-Christian values. So that's kind of roughly what Christian nationalism is. Did you want to add anything to that definition, Maggie? Um, No, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think it's a good description. Yeah, and so look, I mean, Christian nationalism, I think, does raise some 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 eyebrows. Absolutely, I think any time that we blend um, 
the cross of Christ with Caesar's sword, we're bound to run into problems. There's a kind of potential idolatry and a kind of potential, um, yeah, harm that comes to our witness when we reach for Caesar's power instead of learning to uh, to live and lead and serve from from a sort of cross-like posture, and and from a different from a different location, Tisby has this quote. Um, this is from a series he does where he talks about his book, The Color of Compromise. He says that when we talk about white Christian nationalism, any information, any data that refutes the idea of American exceptionalism will be rejected, will be questioned, will be undermined. And so the idea is that along with Christian nationalism is this idea that America is exceptional. So Christian nationalism in America, at least, is bound up with the idea that America is a special place in God's eyes and that we need to protect the specialness, the exceptional nature of America. And it's meant to be this Christian nation. And so that's why there, there needs to be this fusing of church and state and politics. And so look, that was his explanation for why so many evangelicals support Trump. These evangelicals are given to this theological belief system. And I think my initial reaction was that that this was an incomplete explanation. It's not that it totally gets things wrong. It's just that it doesn't say enough. And so it's not, it's not adequate. It's not, it's not finished. Um, and, and the reason is this. Being a Christian nationalist doesn't itself, as a broad theological paradigm, it doesn't itself imply anything about your moral priorities. This is really important. Perhaps it's better to put it this way. Being a Christian nationalist in its purest form, doesn't imply anything about the moral political values that ought to be reflected in a nation's laws or in a nation's moral fabric, right? Christian nationalism itself is merely the view that a nation is supposed to align with Christianity at the level of laws and morals uh, that it expresses. So in principle, someone could be a Christian nationalist and be left-leaning. They could think that the politics of the left better achieve the goal of the, the of na of Christian nationalism than the politics of the right, right? This is this theoretically possible. In, in other words, you could be a liberal Christian nationalist. So so therefore, Christian nationalism itself won't motivate you to align so passionately with Trump. It's it, it's it's not Christian nationalism on its own. In addition, you need to couple Christian nationalism with a theory about God's moral priorities, God's legal priorities. What would it mean for America to be exceptional, to be a Christian nation? Well, to, to answer that, you need to fill in the details about God's moral economy. Um, in other words, someone needs to believe more than that the church should push for political power in order to safeguard America and in, in order to be exceptional, because even left-leaning Christians could do that. In addition, the, the Christian nationalist is going to need particular views about what matters most to God. So in my view... The missing explanatory link is this. White evangelicals prioritize sexual ethics in their moral thinking. Their vision of social ethics puts the abortion issue at the very, at the very center. And it puts sexuality um, at the very center. These are the things that in, in the view of many conservatives, many evangelicals, carry the most moral weight in the grand scheme of things. That, coupled with their Christian nationalism, that is going to lead to support for Trump. That's the hinge on which support for Trump turns, to a large degree at least. There probably are 
all sorts of things going on. But if 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 Christian nationalism is, is if Christian nationalism is going to explain support for Trump as Tisby thinks it does, you have to add more to the story. You have to say, well, it's Christian nationalism and all this other these other views about what matters most, morally speaking, from a social ethical point of view. And the moral priorities and concerns of many conservatives are key in understanding support for Trump, not just some belief that America is supposed to be a Christian nation. And, and, and so I think Tisby's, Tisby's explanation is lacking. It's incomplete. And it lacks in a way that matters. I, I really do think it matters. We need, we need to understand carefully that it's not just a view about American exceptionalism or about America being a Christian nation. It's it's also what you fill in as far as moral priorities go. I, I, so hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think there's a few other things to consider, though. I mean, historically speaking, it is right leaning. Christian nationalism has been connected with the Republican Party since the post-war period, um, when sure. God We Trust was printed on money, um, and this, you know, real conflation between liberalism and socialism, or a move towards communism, which during the Cold War was kind of like the death knell to anything liberal, uh, and then also you have what sort of a liberal leaning perspective brought during the sexual revolution, which also was very much so reacted against by most Christian organizations, not all. Um, but it has, there's been historical activities that have made Christian nationalism pretty much inextricable with the Republican party. And, so, and you're saying it's more than just concern over abortion and sexual ethics. Like, I mean, it's also yeah. concern about like the structure of government, like, yep capital or the structure of the market really mm-hmm. capitalism yeah. versus socialism or something like that yeah i see I, I would say that yeah there's so there's there's that piece as well um so at, at, speaking as a historian i can see why christian nationalism would be really just a right-leaning concept well um, but i wouldn't I expect that, yeah. that like beforehand like if all i knew was that someone was a christian nationalist again i i wouldn't know yeah, whether they're right and, and it's and you have I to understand fill in the that details. like from a yeah from a philosophical point of view, absolutely. Like if you were, you're looking for it, but from a historical point of view, that's what it is. Like so, yeah. to say that like the, here's the trend, right? Like of course that's that's going to be a part of it. Um, and so I think that's that's something to consider. One one thing that I will point out though, in the 2016 election versus the 2020 election, one statistic to really pay attention to is. Um, there's been polls out there asking people, did you vote for Trump or against Clinton versus <laughs> did you did you vote for what? Trump or against Biden? And oh before the election, I haven't I haven't looked for updated statistics on this. But before the election, there actually were more evangelicals who were voting for Trump in 2020 than against Biden versus the 2016 election. Wow. So there's a growing tendency for there to be more actual affirmative support for Trump versus just this kind of like gritted teeth. But it's sort of um, mixed, right? Like, because there's like data coming out of like studies on the Midwest that like, I don't know what it was something like evangelical support in the Midwest dropped by like five or 10%, probably like five percentage points. It, it, whatever the drop was, it was pretty mm-hmm. substantial to the point where like, you know, some political pundits are saying that Midwestern evangelicals cost Trump the election. So, I mean, there, mm-hmm. it, it seems like there is some 
reinforcing of commitment to Trump. And then there's like some diminishing reinforcement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. so it's a complicated question. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Um, but I think your point about how many Christians really truly are single issue voters um, and that they just can't see anything beyond what they like the genocide of abortion. Like you can make a lot of arguments and then on the tipping on the scale are millions of lives of unborn babies. There's yeah. not a whole lot that's going to tip the scale when you have that dichotomy in mind. Yeah. And look, you might even think that that argument fails and like Phil Vischer and Sky Jathani just came out with a, a interesting video where they try to like show that that doesn't work. But like, in my view, here's what you shouldn't say. You shouldn't say, oh my gosh, people who do that are crazy because right. the way you just framed it, like clearly there's some moral weight there. There's some pull. And at the end of the day, it may not work as an argument, but like this is an area where in my view, there can be reasonable disagreement. Um, someone mm -hmm. might be wrong about whether that should be a single issue, but it's not like they're being um, wildly irrational or um, morally, I don't know, morally wayward in some way. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, just going back, I think that's why, that's why I think it matters that we get, that we diagnose things correctly. Because um, if all of our efforts are turned towards dismantling and evaluating Christian nationalism, which I actually think we do need to think more critically about Christian nationalism, I think it's not going to address all of the factors, even the main factors that lead a lot of white evangelicals to adamantly get behind someone like Trump. I think it's, it's bigger than Christian nationalism. It involves all the things you mentioned, which definitely expands on what I came up with, but I think my point still stands. It's bigger than just Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think before we close, I just want to make one comment um, about his talk, which is that the Black Lives Matter movement is really contentious amongst Christians because of its affiliation with Marxism, because of where that organization has taken certain stands and things like that. And he had a lot to say about that. Um, but I thought the most powerful moment in that conversation was when he said a lot of Christians dismiss Black Lives Matter without providing an alternative. Yeah. And like my, yep. my heart just kind of like dropped a little bit when yeah. I said that, because I, I think that's so true. We use it as an excuse to not get involved at all. Like there are such dramatic problems in the United States that a lot of, admittedly, a lot of people are just like, okay, maybe this is just so problematic. We can never fix it, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, I mean, there's nonpartisan support for prison reform as an example. Right. Um, like we see these issues um, and yet because we as Christians um, or we as the white church find an issue with a movement, we're like, oh, okay, we're just going to dismiss that entirely without really coming up with actionable plans. And I really just want to reiterate that. I think that's something that all of us, no matter where we're coming from, need to think deeply about how we can be involved, we can do something without necessarily um, affiliating ourselves with something that we might fundamentally disagree with. Like, that's not an excuse for inaction. That's right. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes 
where you'll have an opportunity to win a free book. Also, stay tuned for a lot more content coming up into the new year. As Maggie and I progress through our own PhD programs, it's our joy to stay connected with you, talking through the issues that matter to us as graduate students and Christ followers. See you next time. Boom. Mm -hmm. Did we ever say that the C was commitment? We skipped the C. Okay. Well, okay. Gives us a a starting point if we want to do more. I'll just like tag it on right at the end of the podcast. By the way, P.S. The C stands for commitment. Commitment. Commit yourself. Be in it for the long run. All right, cool.